Guess what, cinephiles? I've just heard something absolutely mind-blowing. Okay, so you know when you search for something on Netflix, what you get is only a tiny fraction of what Netflix actually has. Netflix actually has more than 18,000 titles globally, but only like 6,000 of those are available in the U.S., so you're missing out on literally thousands of great shows, unless you use ExpressVPN. Yeah, Steve, ExpressVPN is an app that lets you change your online location. So like, for example, if you're looking for stuff that's from another country, you're based here in the United States, you actually change your online location to Australia or the UK so you can control where you want Netflix to think you're located. They have over 100 different locations. They're on ExpressVPN. So you can, you can gain access to like thousands of of new shows no matter where you live. And this works with many other streaming services too there. You guys have Disney Plus or Hulu or Max or the BBC iPlayer, which is the one I use. I know I've used ExpressVPN to connect to Australia because I really love this show called Have You Been Paying Attention? I just put myself in Melbourne and I get access to it. You sign up using your email, but you immediately get access to the stuff. I've used the BBC iPlayer to watch a number of shows there on the BBC like Law & Order UK and others. And sometimes this show Guilty that I love that uh, screens there, when the new seasons pop up, because it takes like four months to get them on PBS, I watch them there using ExpressVPN. And it's incredible how easy it is and how simple it is to use. So why should you use ExpressVPN? Well, first of all, it is super fast. That means you can stream everything in HD with no buffering. It works on any device. So I'm an Apple guy, which means I've already installed it on my Mac, on my iPhone, on my iPad, and on my Apple TV. I'd install it on my Apple Watch if I could, and it encrypts your data. Now, this is hugely important because it protects your privacy and your security to keep you safe from hackers. So stop missing out on great TV and get thousands of new shows with ExpressVPN. We got them to give you guys three extra months of free use when you use our special link, expressvpn.com slash cinephiles. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S to get three extra months completely free. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. This is, this is ridiculous, okay? I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, with, I'll go. Shit. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, and host in San Diego, California. 
And it is a new year, John. This is our first official Cinephiles recording that's not a live show in 2023. Yeah, and we're doing it in the middle of thunderstorms in both of our cities uh, right now. So if you hear loud noises, loud noises, that's what that is. So there you go. And so while we're about to roll into a big director in our annual season of with our exploration of Quentin Tarantino, we thought it'd be a good idea to do something fun and I can't think of very movies that are more fun than Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I know. What an excellent uh, choice, man. We were ha- we were kicking some ideas back and forth, and you mentioned Ferris Bueller. And it's something we've certainly discussed a number of times in the, in the years that we've been doing the show. And it just kind of worked out that, okay, let's do it. Let's have some fun here. And hopefully, because we've sent out our listener survey, right? So, so I hope mm-hmm. people who are concerned about us not talking about enough comedies or 80s movies will maybe take a step back and go like, okay, fine. They talked about an 80s movie and a comedy movie right off the bat. So, Well, th- this is, I can't imagine a more 80s movie than Ferris Bueller's Day Off. For in so fact, many reasons, yeah. <laughs> in some ways, like, is there a more important director for people of exactly our age? Yeah. No, there's no more formative director, that's for sure, because of so many of his films, whether directed or written or produced by him, that influenced so many of us through our teen years uh, into our 20s, into, as we were uh, glimpsing adulthood, right? I mean, uh, what do you got? The Pretty in Pink, 16 Candles. Um, uh, Breakfast Club, of course. Breakfast Club, which we did on the show. Yep. Uh, so, what's, the, what's the one? Some kind of wonderful planes, mm-hmm. trains, and automobiles, and then Home Alone being kind of like that. Uh, transition, yeah. Yeah, transition place. Of course, that's Chris Columbus directed it, but he wrote it. So there's so much of John Hughes that I think has created, has, uh, I don't know, how could, has formed so many of us in our lives. Well, particularly because, like, this movie comes out in 86. Ferris yeah. is graduating high school in 86. I'm graduating high school in 86. Right. Like, this is, this and Breakfast Club and 16 Candles and those were they were directly at me and at yeah. my life, you know? Right. Like, do I think John Hughes is one of the great directors of all time? No. Right. Do I think that it's a certain point in my life he was speaking to me more than any other director? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, very possible. Yeah. So I know for me, the same thing. I mean, I, uh, for me, it's like uh, I'm two years, you know, I'm just a couple of years behind you. So for me, it's like, oh, I know I'm Anthony Michael Hall in 16 Candles or I'm I sense I'm one of the kids in in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I'm one of those kids on the bus, you know, at the end. So there's so much that um, I can connect to. And then as I'm getting older, I'm Eric Stoltz in some kind of wonderful, having that right. attraction to that girl that you think is unattainable and how the hell do I get her attention and all of that all the way into Home Alone where you – oh, and even Uncle Buck. Let's not forget Uncle Buck oh, that, yeah. that as well, like that idea of having a, a crazy uncle who's going to take care of you and being mad at your parents and – all of that you're transitioning in the, around that time. So, so much of, I find so much of myself in his movies um, as well. Absolutely. Okay. John, how'd you first come to this film? I went to see it with a bunch of friends in high school, of course. I mean, this one, this one, you know, you'd had 16 candles, I think before this one, yep. I think you'd had breakfast club before this one. Both so yeah. So it was like, okay, all right, what's the next thing? And you saw this trailer and, I don't remember if I knew Matthew Broderick. I don't remember if I'd seen. Oh, well, I'd seen War Games. I War guess. Games. I had not seen though what Project X or whatever that. The that's after this. That's oh, so that's after this. So yeah. okay, so I guess my connection was seeing him in War Games. So I'm like, okay, this is cool. Who's? Let's see what we're gonna get from this. Uh, and it seemed like such a fun, cool movie. And this idea of playing hooky 
or skipping out on school to go and, and these crazy adventures. The trailer absolutely sold it. So a bunch of us went to see it at the local uh, theater in, in Dale City at the time. And I remember just sitting there being transfixed by this movie as he was lit. He was like a spirit animal. I wish I could be Ferris. I wish I could yeah. live the life. I'm Cameron in this movie when I'm watching it at the time. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it's, my story is exactly the same. I went to see it with a bunch of my friends. I think it was at the theater in San Rafael. I'm not sure, mm. but I totally remember it. And of course, like a lot of these other John Hughes films, this was in the VHS rotation. I watched it over and over and over again. Yeah, absolutely. I was doing lines as I was watching it. And uh, Lindley walked over and she's like, you know, I can hear you, right? You know that I because I watch on headphones when she's working and she walked over and she's like, for God's sakes, uh, I, I mean, you're doing the whole movie for me. You might as well take the headphones off. So very fun. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, it is one of those movies where I literally probably do know every line. Like yeah. it just, I've seen it so many times. Um, here's a little bit of pre-production. So here's, this is one philosophical idea I find really interesting is that mm -hmm. John Hughes is, it started because he said, I want to do a movie about someone for whom life is easy. And that is like the opposite of all storytelling. All storytelling is about yeah. creating characters that have problems. Right. Conflict. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's the, if you, if you don't have conflict, if you don't have someone who has a problem, you got no story. And how so do I relate to you? If you have no obstacles to overcome, it's great. Exactly. Yeah. And that is, and Ferris Bueller, he really doesn't have problems, Yeah, you know? Um, and, and then this is how it really came about is that we were heading towards a writer's strike in 1985 mm -hmm. And one of an executive goes up to John Hughes and goes, I want to make a movie with you. If we don't have a script in three weeks, that's when the strike's going to start. And then we can't make a movie. And John Hughes is known as one of the fastest writers in Hollywood history. Mm -hmm. I think he wrote breakfast club in like, you know, five days or something like that. Wow. I mean, you know, like he, he's that kind of writer. So he goes home and writes this movie in six days. <laughs> Insane. Insane. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. There is a rumor that this is based on a kid he grew up with on a street whose name is Edward McNally, who had who was chased by a dean because of his 27 days of absence. <laughs> wow. Um, whether or not that's true, I don't know. Um, there were several actors considered, including John Cusack, including Anthony Michael Hall, who apparently turned it down. Wow. But John Hughes says he always wanted Matthew Broderick. Mm that he really wrote it with Matthew Broderick in mind. He had seen him on Broadway. And I think, and we're now at the point we've done so many movies, I really can't remember, but I think this might be our first Matthew Broderick movie. Yeah, maybe. I would think there's not that many that we could do from Matthew Broderick. So yeah, I guess this might be our first one and arguably maybe his best one. It's very possible. And he is, uh, so I'll give him a, a, this littlest bit of bios just because I think he's an interesting person. Yeah. His parents are theater folks. Yeah. He does a couple of small plays, and then he finds himself in an off-Broadway production of a little play by Harvey Firestein called Torch Song Trilogy. Yeah, Harvey Firestein. Which becomes a huge sensation, and suddenly Matthew Broderick is someone everyone is after, and the next person who goes after him is a little-known playwright named Neil Simon. <laughs> yes. Is this and for Roxy Blues, or what's this book? Brighton Beach Memoirs to start. Oh, Beach, right. And he does this, it starts, which I didn't know, it starts at the Amundsen right here in Los Angeles. Hmm. And then, because, you know, these productions start out of town, oh. and then it goes for its second out-of-town location to San Francisco at the Curran Theater, where I saw him in 1982. Wow. You remember uh, seeing him. 
one. Yep. I have such a strong memory of going to see Brighton Beach Memoirs in the city mm-hmm. and it being one of the, I mean, I, I assume you've seen it or seen the movie probably. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's so good. Man, Neil Simon, when he's good, he's just. Look, as great as John Hughes is, Neil Simon is just one million times uh, better. And he's, he's the, the, the ability that he had to write so many incredible plays, so many funny situations. It, it's fantastic. And that leads to him getting cast in. He wins the Tony Award when he goes to Broadway. And he's fantastic in the play. And it leads to War Games, which is 1983, yeah. which I loved. It's also the reason that my sister refused to get a computer <laughs> until she was in her 20s. <laughs> because she's like, nope, that's all evil. Scared the crap out of her. Right. Uh, which I get. Ladyhawk in 85. Right. Ladyhawk. That was the other one I was trying to remember. That's right. Ladyhawk. Yeah. Uh, you know, with Rutger Hauer at his height. And unfortunately, it's funny. I watched that a couple, maybe six or seven years ago. Yeah. Did not hold up. That's an 80s film. It's very 80s. And then we get to Ferris in 86. Yeah. Well, it's funny you bring this stuff up because now as you talk about it, I, you know, this is also right around the time where I'm opening the door in my mind to the possibility of acting, right? Because this is right when I'm like 11 or 12 at the time. And I remember Torch Song Trilogy and Harvey Firestein. I remember reading about that. I remember, I must have read it in the Washington Post in the art section, because that's what I would do starting around 10 or 11 years old. My dad and I would sit there on Sundays and split the paper up between ourselves and read about it. And I don't know why I didn't, maybe it occurred to me that Matthew was in, but I'd never remember that. But Harvey Firestein, just that name. I always remember yeah. that name connected to Torch Song Trilogy. And of course, he was re- recently in Bros, had a very funny uh, sequence in Bros. So seeing him, uh, so hearing that as you talk about it, then I remember, I think I do remember Brighton Beach Memoirs being a play up there. I think Mercedes Rule was in that as in that version of Brighton Beach Memoirs. Oh, maybe. Yeah, maybe. So I just remember like that was the, I was beginning my awakening to pursuing arts as a career, as a life. And so being aware of those kinds of things as you're talking about it, I was aware. I wasn't lucky enough to go and see it as you were, but I certainly was aware of it from my uh, place in my house. It's funny. If Karen were on this show, she would be forced to tell one of her favorite theater stories, which I'll tell for because it's a good one, mm-hmm. which is her parents would take her to Broadway shows. Uh-huh. And frequently her dad would just read in the paper whatever the big Broadway show was. Mm but didn't always read too many details. And so he took them to Torch Song Trilogy <laughs> when Karen was, I think, 10 or 11. Yeah. Um, and he and they he was late. And so he dropped them off while he went to park. And at the end of the first act, you know, they look over at their two daughters and go, oh, what have we done? And Karen says it's one of the great experiences of her life because she had this, you know, amazing play and then spent the whole next, you know, hours driving back to New Jersey talking about those issues. I mean, well, and shout point. out to her parents for staying in the theater. Yep. Some other, some other parents might walk on out because yep. of the subject matter and the fact that they stayed and were willing to have that conversation. I think that was great. I have one more thing to say before we jump into the film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, you know, we, we just did, it's a wonderful life, which is a movie I absolutely adore. And I know that you do too. And I also said, as we are doing it, like, this is like the handbook to codependency and don't do what George does, even though George is a hero. Yeah. I had the opposite reaction watching this movie. I adore this movie. I think it's great. Start to finish. Almost every moment I think is fantastic. And the more I think about Ferris Bueller, he's not a good person. Well, <laughs> yeah, we're going to have some battles over that, I think, as the film goes along. So it's going to be a fun episode for sure. Well, and let's just jump right into it. We start, we hear some morning radio. We fade up on this house, which is 
John Hughes most, this is really a love story to Chicago in a lot of ways. Yeah. And one of the things he's upset about is they did have to shoot half of it in Los Angeles and that this particular house is in Long Beach. And that kind of bummed him out. Um, but we hear some voiceover about Ferris and, you know, what's wrong. And then we cut to our first shot of Matthew Broderick just on his side under the covers looking right at camera with a dead look on his face. And we get to watch him con his parents that he is sick. I get up. No. No. I have a test today. No. I have to take it. I, I want to go to a good college so I can have a fruitful life. I always enjoyed this, uh, and even more so watching it this time around, this, what you could get away with back in the 80s, that idea of clammy hands and the hurt stomach and seeing his parents dote on him as the way that, and I had such a crush on his mom, by the way, seeing them dote on him um, in that whole sequence is so fun. It's such a great dad and mom casting. Mm-hmm. Both of them absolutely fit the roles that they're doing in such uh, different ways, you know what I'm saying? And you sense that this is not a loveless marriage, that both of them have a connection to each other and they love their child very much, uh, much to his sister's uh, chagrin. Yeah. Well, and, and and the way it's shot is perfect, which is that they're essentially looking into camera. Yes. Looking yes. down at him. He's looking up at them. And it's what's so great about Matthew Broderick, and I think he's great, you know, beginning to end, is the ability to play this level of sort of, we all know it's bullshit. Yeah, yeah act yeah. right, and yet have enough sincerity that we buy his parents buying it to some degree. You know, yeah, yeah. even though they really shouldn't. Even though he tells us worst performance of my career, and it's still yeah. worst. Um, I also think it was smart of Hughes to do it this way because we become Ferris Bueller. Yeah, and that's what he really wants us to be. He wants us to connect to this character, and maybe like, well, it's my opinion. What I sense that, uh, what, what I analyze that I think John Hughes is maybe showing us from the beginning is that we are Ferris. We can be Ferris. We can kind of not take things so seriously, not get so caught up in the pain and the sordidness of life and, uh, you know, live vicariously through someone like this in a movie like this. You know, it's funny. The other movie that we just did that I would never have connected to Ferris Bueller at all, Mm. but uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which is a movie about free spirits versus the institutions. Sure. And there's a thing of like, well, rebellion against the institution here. Well, sure. One's trying to educate you, though, and another one is trying to maybe uh, drug you up or, or incarcerate you to keep you out of society. I don't know. I, I saw those shots of those classrooms at his high school. They're pretty terrible. <laughs> I mean, that's standard what I went. Uh, those looked just like my high school. Absolutely. And of course, like all good liars, Ferris Bueller is trying to convince them that he should go to school so that yes. they will try to convince him that he should stay home. And as this is setting up, we get these in-shirt shots of a tapping foot and angry tapping fingers. And there we see Jeannie, yeah, Jennifer Grey. Gray. The great Jennifer Grey. Oh, fine. What's this? What's his problem? He doesn't feel well. Yeah, right. Dry that one out. You can fertilize the lawn. There was a time where Jennifer Grey was really like this, the, the thing that was going to happen, you know, and. This is one of those first roles where you really see that this was going to be a dynamo of an actress. She is great throughout this movie. And it was fun to reacquaint myself with this film after so many years to see what she brings to this character. Because look, Matthew Broderick is the star of the film. How do you counter that energy in a different, interesting, and unique way that keeps the audience's attention and invested in her journey? Even if you may see her as the bitter, frustrated sister, 
how many siblings have probably watched this film and identified with her more than Ferris Bueller. It's it's interesting. Oh, oh, absolutely. And of course, she's not buying any of this. No. Um, and she's can't believe that her parents are getting suckered in. And of course, while this is happening, Ferris is winking at her and, you know, yeah. showing give it away that. the plot. Yeah, give it away the plot. Yeah. You're letting him stay home. I can't believe this. If I was bleeding out my eyes, you guys would make me go to school. This is so unfair. We've now set up her character in one moment. We understand what her struggle is. Yeah. Even if Ferris always gets what he wants. Yeah, exactly. And there's all, I mean, this is what's so hard for me about doing comedies is there are all sorts of little things, little looks, little touches that I want to describe, but it would take us forever. Mm -hmm. But watching the interplay between Ferris and his parents and between Ferris and his sister, it's all great stuff. Yeah, it lays the groundwork really quickly without any exposition. You lay the groundwork of the relationships between all four of these people very clearly. Janie is the jealous one. Her parents know she's the jealous one. And she acts out in jealousy because of their frustration. But also you could look at the, or because of her frustration rather, at the whole situation with Ferris. But also you could look at this in such an interesting psychological way. There are many daughters and mothers who would probably relate to this idea of the mom favoring the male son over the female daughter, sure. even though they're of the same gender. There's that kind of thing that a, a lot of psychologists and sociolo sociologists have explored in numerous papers and books about this relationship between the mother and the daughter when a son is involved. So it's just fascinating to see it in microcosm way right at the beginning, these uh, battle lines, in essence, being drawn. Well, there's also the son that is apparently always able to manipulate his parents into getting almost everything he wants. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Now, now I'm not saying I know anybody like this. <laughs> nor should you say that uh yeah exactly i love like matthew broddicks who's just uh, you know call if you need anything he does a little phone like ringy dingy like yeah. all that stuff is hilarious and it's all coming from matthew broddick by the way oh so smart plays the baby angle so well i love you sweetie call if you need us the parents walk out and something that I didn't know about these two parents mm -hmm. right around this time, they started dating. Oh, for real. The book. And that, yes. And that this is uh, Lyman Ward and Sidney Pickett. And then they got married. Wow. And they were married for six years. Oh, for six, only for six. Yeah. Oh. But Ferris Bueller's parents actually married each other after this shoot. That's hilarious. Uh, Jennifer Gray was while they were shooting this scene, dating Matthew Roderick. Yes. This I knew. This I knew, yes. And then Ferris, once they're gone, turns the camera and says, "They bought it." <laughs> now, one of the thing, one of the reasons that that they knew that Matthew Broderick was the right person for this role mm -hmm. was that Brighton Beach Memoirs is all him talking to the audience, right? Yeah, breaking the it's, fourth wall. So they knew this was something he could do. By the way, the other thing is now we're going to have he's going to talk to the, us a lot. He's going to talk right to camera. John Hughes and I think this is really smart directing made the decision to shoot this all near the end of the shoot so that they had had the whole oh. shoot for Matthew Broderick to get used to how to do this. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Camera. Interesting. Okay. Incredible. One of the worst performances of my career and they never doubted it for a second. And then he opens up the shades and says, how could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? Well, as someone who took a few days off in my senior year of high school, because I found out how many days I could miss and I knew I could still maintain my grades. Uh, I absolutely uh, understood this moment even more so after being a senior in high school. 
the one day I never cut school. And the one day I did in my senior year, I got caught and sent to the principal. <laughs> you didn't do it right. Nope, I mean, didn't do it right. We would, it was me and uh, Maurice and Jim. We would cut school. We would go to museums down in DC. We would go play tennis. We would do all kinds of things, just kind of do our own thing. And look, it didn't affect us. Each of us kind of walked our path. Jim is a very good uh, a journalist over there in Virginia. And Maurice has been a city manager in a number of cities. So, you know, we just took some time and had some fun with ourselves because we understood that we didn't want to take life too seriously as seniors, man. Thank you, Ferris. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Very influential. Well, and right now he gives some Steve very like sick- Jamie got caught. They got sick- I know. I know. Um, <laughs> well, and right now, Ferris is going to give you some good advice. The key to faking out the parents is the clammy hands. It's a good nonspecific symptom. I'm a big believer in it. I love the way Matthew Broderick talks to camera. Yeah, me too. I think he's so good. So natural at it. Not a lot of people can. He's very natural at it. And I love too that now we get text on the screen giving the bullet points of his lecture. A lot of people will tell you that a good phony fever is a deadlock, but uh, you get a nervous mother, you could wind up in a doctor's office. That's worse than school. And we see doctor's office pop up and in red and we see, you know, fee- phony fever get crossed out. <laughs> Let me ask you, have we, had we seen that before in film, the idea of graphics popping up on the screen in that way as a person is talking? I don't know if we'd ever seen anything like that. I wonder if it's in Annie Hall. Oh. That would be a place that it might be. Oh, maybe. You might there's, have an excellent point there. Oh, I didn't think about that. There's maybe. certainly stuff. I mean, certainly he talks to camera and breaks yes, the fourth wall in all sorts of ways. Sure, sure. It's funny. That movie is one, you know, obviously we have some strong feelings about Woody Allen. Yeah. That movie is one that I've never quite liked as much as I find to be an interesting film. I'll put it that way. Hmm, Fascinating. Okay. You fake a stomach cramp, and when you're bent over, moaning and wailing, you lick your palms. It's a little childish and stupid, but then so is high school. I I love the way Matthew Broderick walks down the hall. Yeah. There's just something so charming about him. There's a confidence to him. Yep. Right. And that's, it's like such a great portrayal. Look, people, uh, as an actor, when you're looking at something like this, it's not so easy to portray confidence without looking cocky or looking like you're putting it on or faking it. He has such a natural ease to his confidence, charm to his confidence, an unshakable just belief in himself that you can see that is the way he's, he knows we're going to go with him. It's smart what Hughes does. He's walking away from us. Right. Or he's walk. And if he's walking to us, we're standing there and we're just like watching, just transfixed. So he knows we're going to go with him. Oh, he knows we're going to stop and watch him as he's coming towards us because he's worth paying attention to. Life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. That is the message of the movie. (laughs) Yes. Yes, it is. And then we cut him in the shower, all of which is really funny. Oh, my God. Um, covering the hand covering the the camera as genius once again making you feel like you're a p- interactive part of the movie well and it shows a little piece of his character he doesn't mind that you come into the shower with him but but just one sec hold on i need a little privacy yeah eyes up here buddy i do have a test today that wasn't bullshit it's on european socialism i mean really what's the point i'm not european i don't plan on being european so who gives a crap if they're socialists? They can be fascist anarchists. It still wouldn't change the fact that I don't own a car. And what song does he sing as he's in the shower? Is it Donkashane? 
does some Tonka shame. I recall Central Park in fall. How you saw your dress. What a mess. I confess. This was all shot near the end of the shoot, as I said. So they already knew that's what they were doing for the parade. And so they peppered in all these Donka Shanes throughout the whole film. It's not that I condone fascism. Or any ism, for that matter. Isms, in my opinion, are not good. A person should not believe in an ism. He should believe in himself. It's, it's great logic. Wise it's words. Great logic from the man. But you mentioned earlier, he doesn't have a conflict. He does. He doesn't have a car. This he doesn't is have a big car. deal throughout the whole movie. If he had had a car, this is a completely different thing. A film, rather. So because he doesn't have a car, this is what prompts him to do what he does with Cameron. This is what prompts him to have the issues with Janie even a little bit, because Janie's the one who gets the car. He gets the computer. So just very interesting. So he does have a he does have some conflict in his life that he didn't get something that he that he wants. Yes. Yes, this rich kid did not get one thing that he wanted. Oh, don't start that. <laughs> it's funny that I'm the one that's starting that. Yeah, it is. <laughs> you, you would think that it would be reversed. Why? <laughs> I, I, you know, I think if I had been, uh, I think I'm pretty sure if I had been rich uh, or grown up rich, I'd have been pissed off I didn't get a car either, you know, and got a computer instead. Sure, but but your sympathies do not tend to be with the wealthy in general. Yeah, but I like this guy. I, look. He's unbelievably likable. <laughs> like that's what's so what's he is such a seductive figure. Like I would want to hang out with Ferris Bueller too. It seems great. I'm not a fan of eat the rich, but I don't mind taking a bite out of the rich. That's the fair point. I think that's the fair all right. Point. I, th I think that's fair. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I quote John Lennon. I don't believe in Beatles. I just believe in me. A good point there. After all, he was the walrus. It's an interesting quote, right? Because that is from God which is one of the best fucking songs that Lennon wrote post Beatles. And it's all, it's, it's imagine, but from a dark, different place, you know, and when he's going through scream therapy and what have you. So I, I think it's a great song. And so him quoting that from that song is such an interesting choice. It, it, it gives more layers to him than you initially think um, he might have, you know? And then we cut to Ben Stein. <laughs> An interesting cat, for sure. Adams. Here. Adam Lee. Here. Adamowski. Adamson. Here. So this is this is where he comes from, really. Yes. I mean, where he I mean, where he actually comes from is that he was, you know, a very well-educated person who became a speechwriter for Richard Nixon. Right. That led to him meeting Bill Sapphire, and that led to him meeting casting people, which led to him meeting John Hughes, who heard his voice and saw his face and said, I want you to pay a te play a teacher in his movie. This is his first thing. This is how influential this movie was. People may not grasp it, but in the 1980s, this film was insanely influential. I would argue it's the pinnacle of John Hughes and his influence, rather, this film's influence. And this moment is just a couple of scenes with Ben Stein doing really, literally almost nothing. Yet it was enough to establish Ben Stein as a face and as a name for people to remember all the point where he's doing game shows. And of course now he's a political speaker and all that, but like this is, he just, he had a show, a show called win Ben Stein's money. Yep. That is how successful he got off of this movie. It wasn't anything else, but this movie, it literally made his career. Yep. Of course. And, and, and what, and right now all he's doing is reading names of yeah. which there are many, many A's because <laughs> we have to spend a while to get to Bueller and, and, Whatever we might think of Ben Stein, and he's not really my favorite person in, sure. in, in many ways, the flatness of his voice 
is magically hilarious in this scene. Well, that's why I think this film works so well because it is doing commentary without putting a neon sign over it, right? You're seeing all the kids reacting to their names being called. You know, you look at, you compare this to the Key and Peele scene where he is messing up all the kids' names as he's writing mm. the attendance down. This is the different approach. He is legitimately so kind of lost in himself. And who hasn't had these boring ass teachers who oh, are yeah. there and just kind of are, don't understand how much of a drone they are, but you've got to pay attention. You've got to try not to fall asleep. You've got to write down the notes so you can pass the class. But you see all the different kids. It's a great snapshot of 80s high school. All these different looking kids uh, chiming in in different ways to Ben as he's calling their names. And this is so my high school. I mean, it really it's, is. It's a lot of people high school yeah. in the 1980s, yeah. Um, and of course, when he gets to Bueller. 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 We just have that shot of the empty chair. And then there is Simone, this blonde student who's going to say what she thinks happened to Bueller. Here's how this came about, which I actually think is interesting. Yeah. She was not cast in this part. She was actually cast to play the girl that talks to Ferris on the payphone. Oh, I could see that. Yeah. But they're in Chicago shooting in the school there, which actually it's the same school they shot Breakfast Club. Right. And John Hughes goes, you know what? I should really shoot this the payphone scene here. I found a good payphone. We should just do it here. Yeah. And the Ben Stein scene is in uh, Los Angeles. And so he ah. has to calls up this, uh, this actress and says, listen, I'm sorry. I already shot your part with another actor. <laughs> and she goes, Oh, that's okay. And he's like, but I decided to write you another part. And so he wrote this just to make up for not casting her in the thing that he originally cast her in. Yeah. My best friend's sister's boyfriend's brother's girlfriend heard from this guy who knows this kid is going with the girl who saw Ferris pass out at 31 Flavors last night. I guess it's pretty serious. And you know who this is? Uh, who is it? Christy Swanson. Oh, my God. The original Buffy the Vampire Slayer. That's funny. And also someone now who's in Ben Stein's camp in terms of her points of views oh, on, yeah. on life. Yes, very, very loudly so on social media. So um, very interesting film for this kind of situation. But yeah, that's Christy Swanson in one of, one of her first roles. And then we cut to Cameron's house. Mm. Oh, so good. It's, it, first of all, I mean, this is a famous piece of architecture. It's in Highland Park outside of Chicago. It's mm. designed by students of Mies van der Rohe. The guy who owned it actually did have a collection of Ferraris. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's it's such an, a stunning location. Mm. And we hear the phone ringing and we see these fingers reach out to answer the phone from under the covers. Those are John Hughes's fingers. <laughs> he did not think that Alan Ruck was being dramatic enough. <laughs> so he did it himself. What is it with these directors wanting to use their own hands? Well, I don't think this one is quite as, as, as egregious <laughs> as choking somebody. Yeah, but, no, I agree. Yeah, yeah. Um, look, as you know, hand acting is a very specific specialty. Ask Costanza. He knows. Hello? Cameron, babe, what's happening? Very little. I love that we, we see Cameron in his bed. His The covers are tucked in almost to look like he's in a sarcophagus, you know? Yeah. And we see there's medicines everywhere. And we, and then we, again, this is just a great line. Is your mother in the room? She's in Decatur. Unfortunately, she's not staying. <laughs> right from that, we get a bit, a sense of Cameron's life. Yes. Yes. So Alan Ruck was in the Broadway show that Matthew Broderick was in right oh. when they, before they started shooting Ferris Bueller's. Wow. And that is Biloxi Blues. <laughs> 
That's great. Alan Ruck had also auditioned for the Bender part in Breakfast Club. So he met John Hughes. Okay. Um, And so they were buddies. And as soon as he came into audition, he did his first audition was with Matthew Broderick. And they had massive chemistry right away because they'd been on Broadway together for for months. Of course. Um, And the thing that he found out was that Emilio Estevez had just passed on this movie, on this, on playing Cameron. Wow. And so, so every time Alan Ruck sees Emilio Estevez, he thanks him. <laughs> he's so good in this movie. Oh, he's great. Oh my God. He, and he's as, as essential as uh, Janie is with her, um, Jean, sorry, Jeannie is with her energy. You have to have someone that is the complete yin to the yang of Ferris Bueller. And that is where Cameron comes in and he is perfect. You know, he, he's, he's great in the serious parts. He's super funny in the funny parts. Yeah. He's completely his own kind of character. And he is one of those people who I'm, and I know he's on succession now and doing great, oh, but yeah. I always was sad that he didn't have that career after this movie. You know, he had stuff. Well, sure. He was in spin city. He was all those. Oh, oh, you, mean, you mean theatrically? Is that what you mean? Yeah. I mean, I, I expected this to be another one of those teen stars or not. Oh, really? Stars. You thought, yeah. Oh, Oh, he had such an unusual face. I guess I never, expected that for him but tv he's been great uh, on the the small screen of course in generations a small role in generations um and the contrast between alan ruck in his bed and ferris bueller with the tiki drink sitting by the pool is just amazing is this where you start to turn on ferris is this the moment where you start when he's he's imitating You said he's not a good person. That's what you led with. That's what you said. No, here's what's no here. Let me let me see if I express myself better. I never rewind the tape. Someone rewind the tape. (laughs) Can we get the evidence here? Yes. I never turn on Ferris. I love Ferris. Oh, you love Ferris. I do. I just thinking about it, I'm like, this is a spoiled kid who always gets what he wants and is perfectly happy to manipulate his friends and everybody else into not necessarily great situations in order to continue to get what he wants. Okay. You know, what part of that is not true? We'll revisit it uh, situation by situation as we go along. I think that's a smarter thing. Go ahead. So Cameron is complaining about being sick and he can't come out and Ferris is pressuring him to come out and Cameron hangs up on him and says, (laughs) and then the phone rings and he answers it and we hear, you're not dying. You just can't think of anything good to do. So there are several fan theories about Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yeah. One of which is that Ferris Bueller is living Groundhog Day. And that is oh. why he is able to perfectly predict everything that happens and deal with every situation so perfectly. Because, in fact, he has relived this day over and over again. And that is why he knows that Cameron just said, I'm dying. So he can call him and say, you're not dying. The fan theory I subscribe to is that after he hangs up the phone, Cameron falls asleep without knowing it, and the rest of the film is a dream. Mm. And that it's all from Cameron's point of view. Everything that happens is that's why he knows that he's going to call him back up and go, you know, you're, you know, you're you're not sick, you just can't, or you're not dying, you just can't think of what to do, right? And it all leads to Cameron getting the monologue. Yeah, and Cameron getting that moment of you know the arc. There's not really an arc for Ferris, really, but there is an arc for Cameron. Absolutely. And so, to me, I kind of like that theory that after the first call, because we've all been really, really tired when we just kind of fall asleep uh, oh, without yeah. knowing we're asleep, 
And I think he falls asleep. Plus he's drugged up with, we see all those drugs. So how much of this stuff is, you know, induced by the drugs and the combination of stuff that he's going through. So I kind of like that there. And I watched the movie this time around through that prism. um, And I, I think I agree with it, to be honest. Well, you said something when we did uh, breakfast club that Mm -hmm. I remember, which is, you said it's all, this is all a fantasy or at Mm -hmm. a certain point, it all becomes a fantasy because it goes to such crazy places. Yeah, and I, actually, as I was watching at this time, it, it actually worked in my mind of some of these jumps in logic that you see in the film. I mean, what happens in this movie is nuts. I think this is a this, this might not be written as a fantasy of these characters, but this movie is a fantasy. Absolutely, you know? absolutely. Like, fantasy, yeah. um, the other fan theory, by the way, is mm-hmm. that this is Fight Club, and that there, that Ferris Bueller <laughs> is Tyler Durden. He does not exist. Oh, that's he, a good one. He's a figment of Cameron's imagination, and it's his. <sighs> Uh, alter ego of who he wants to be. Oh, I love that. I love that. Actually, I actually like that idea a lot. I I might need to watch this movie again through that prism. I like that idea. Well, and that Sloan is uh, Helena Bonham Carter. Right, right. That he's have he's actually, this is actually his girlfriend who doesn't know he has a split personality. And then we have this moment, which Karen and I have sung our entire time we've known each other of... When Cameron was in Egypt's land Let my Cameron go And I love that the chorus joins in with him on this. <laughs> yes, yeah, the, the great little moment. And once again, the genius of John Hughes being able to slide little moments like that in all of his films that kind of uh, add a little more to the viewer as they're watching it. And then uh, we have a conversation between Ferris's mom and the principal of his high school, Jeffrey Jones. Are you also aware, Mrs. Bueller, that Ferris does not have what we consider to be an exemplary attendance record? Very, uh, certainly now we have to kind of bring that up as he's first presence, but certainly a very, um, how can I say this, uncomfortable situation with Jeffrey Jones and what happened to him and- what he was involved in and certainly all of the stuff that, and I ran into him one time at a Gelson's. Oh yeah. It was a weird moment because it was right when all that shit had blown up about him. And for those of you who don't know, he was caught with child pornography and there was a big old controversy around it. And um, I remember seeing, he looked just absolutely wrecked and yeah. I didn't even know. Cause I mean, I love this movie so much I had such a weird reaction that moment, and I just kind of froze and, and walked away, turned around and walked mm-hmm. away, you know. But um, he's so great in the film, and it's heartbreaking to see what happened afterwards, man. It really is. He's he's fantastic in Amadeus. He's yes. amazing. I think he's amazing in this movie. Yeah, I agree. I think he's great. If Ferris thinks that he can just coast through this month and still graduate, he is sorely mistaken. And then while, while he's having this conversation with Ferris's mom, we cut to Grace. The great Edie McClurg, man. She's so damn good. Do you know she's a twin? I did not know that. Yes, she's a twin. There's a twin. So just kind of crazy. And there's a lot of rumors that we talked about this in Plain Strange and Automobiles that she is the sister of the woman, the travel agent. Did, uh, yes, you did mention that. I yeah, forgot. which is, if you think about that, that kind of actually works, so. She's so funny in this, and she 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 uh, it was her idea to do that big bubble hairdo, um, and so she did that before coming to set, 
yeah. um, without even talking to John Hughes about it. He walked in, John Hughes looked at it, goes, I love it. And then turns to her and says, how many pencils do you think you could hide in that hair? And she goes, I don't know. Let's find out. And the answer was four. Wow. And that's when we see this little bit of her pulling all these pencils out of her hair. <laughs> She's so good. She's great. So far this semester, he has been absent nine times. Nine times? Nine times. Nine times. Do you want to know why John Hughes picked the number nine? <laughs> is it the Beatles thing? It's no. the Beatles. He's yeah, of course. a huge Beatles fan. Of course. And it is funny. You know, it's funny that there's certain sounds are funny. So nine times is funny. Where, you know, seven times wouldn't have been. Not um, six minute abs, seven minute abs. <laughs> seven minute abs. Um, and, uh, and of course, we see the nine times on the computer. And then as he's talking to, uh, to mom, the absences go down to two times. Yeah. I asked for a car. I got a computer. How's that for being born under a bad sign? See, again, his issue of the car. It's a no, the car. It is his one main issue. Yeah. By the way, does this make you think about war games? Uh Oh, yeah, that he was using it. I wonder if it was a bit of a meta thing to have him using the computer in that way. I Because I saw war games so many times yeah, before seeing this movie. Yeah. I can appreciate how this time of year children are prone to taking the day off. However, in Ferris's case, I can assure you he is truly a very sick boy. Cut to Ferris with the clarinet. <laughs> Never had one lesson. Great cut. That was a, a, a just some set dressing that was sitting in the set, and Matthew Broderick said, hey, I have an idea. That's great. Not one lesson. So all that Ben Stein was hired to do was to read the names for the attendance scene. That was it. Oh, wow. And... John Hughes liked it so much that he said, hey, could you teach a class? Let's have you teach a class. Right. And Ben Stein goes, okay, what, what do I teach? And, and John Hughes basically goes, I don't know, make something up. What do you know about? Well, Ben Stein has like a degree in economics. Yeah, yeah. So this is all an improv. This is great. This is such a great lesson that he's teaching because everything he's saying is 100% true. Oh, yeah. It's like you get a mini lesson in this movie as you're watching this lecture from Ben Stein for a few seconds. And for a guy who's not an actor, mm -hmm. his use of the word anyone, anyone, <laughs> like how he, like he even does it like mid-sentence a couple of times. The Holly Smoot Tariff Act, which anyone raised or lowered, raised tariffs. And the intercutting with the faces of those students, the board faces. Yeah. Perfect. The dude slobbering on the, on the desk. But this is, this is a great point of view from the teacher's point of view in that, you know what, I've just got to power through this lesson. Yep. And uh, if you're not going to pay attention, you're not going to pay attention, you'll fail the test, whatever. I've got to power through the lesson, you know, so, yeah. Well, and it's so the disconnect between where the students are and where the teachers are. Yeah. And like, I, and this is, you know, th this is where I go, like, it, the movie totally supports why Ferris Bueller is taking a day off. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's nothing here for him, you know? Yeah. And so what happened after Ben Stein does this monologue mm -hmm. that he made up, the entire class bursts into applause, according to Ben Stein. Yeah, and, this, and the crew bursts into applause. And he says, and again, according to Ben Stein, he at first thought that it was because they really enjoyed his lecture on economics <laughs> and then uh, realized that they just thought it was really, really funny. And Ben Stein describes this as the happiest day of his entire life. <laughs> wow. That's what he says. Wow. Okay. Uh, and we cut from voodoo economics to 
and to Ferris dancing to I Dream of Jeannie. Good moves there. Good moves. Yep. Uh, by the way, one of the things John Hughes wanted to make sure of in this opening sequence is that Ferris Bueller is in a different outfit every time you see him. Yeah, of course. It sounds about right. Um, and we cut from the song I Dream of Jeannie to Jeannie. Yes, right. Walking through the hall where people are sympathizing with her about her brother. What are you sorry for? I have to live with a trouser snake. No, I mean, I heard he's really sick. Whoa. Well, who said he's sick? A bunch of people. They said he's like on the verge of death. By the way, all the kids at high school, they're all real high school kids. Oh, wow. That's so yeah, smart. And, and part of what he wanted was because I think uh, Jennifer Grey and Matthew Broderick were both like 21 when they shot this. Alan Ruck's 29. <laughs> oh, wow. Is they wanted kind of this distance a little bit between them and the, the real high school kids. Right. This guy in my biology class said that if Ferris dies, he's giving his eyes to Stevie Wonder. So great. So great. And these freshmen, which who really are high school freshmen, are calling Ferris on the payphone yeah. where he is playing his, in addition to having his nice computer, he has a very fancy keyboard where he's playing sick noises. <laughs> I can sense your bitterness in your voice. Yeah. Um, yes, he's, he's playing these little sound cues for the two freshmen. I love the guy going, oh, yeah, Ferris is getting me out of summer school. Man, I hope he yeah. doesn't die. I can't do summer school, man. I can't do summer school. <laughs> Um, and then you see the interactions between a, like a young girl in, in high school and, and the dudes who are trying to like touch her and stuff. And she's like, get off me. And, but you know, she has the back and forth with Ferris. Think you'll be alive this weekend? Yeah, I'd say I will. Great. Maybe I'll see ya. Bye. That's high school for you. Yep. I love the little bit where he plays, uh, you know, the waltz on the, uh, on his keyboard with six sounds. Yeah. It's all funny. <coughs> Ed Rooney says, I don't trust this kid any further than I can throw him. Well, with your bad knee, Ed, you shouldn't throw anybody. Every little bit between the two of them, I think, is funny. Yeah, it is. And what's interesting to me is this is, it's not that Ed Rooney is the same character as what's-his-name in Breakfast Club, um, the teacher. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's a definitely a similar dynamic of he sees Ferris as a threat to him. Sure. Um, because he's turning these other kids against him. They both represent the institution. Yep. So, yeah. He jeopardizes my ability to effectively govern this student body. Well, makes you look like an ass is what he does, Ed. So we were watching this with Jax. He screamed. He cracked up so loud at that line. Mm -hmm. And Grace says, uh, and this was her audition, by the way. Oh, well, he's very popular, Ed. The sportos, the motorheads, geeks, sluts, bloods, wasteoids, dweebies, dickheads. They all adore him. And then she says, and this was an improv in the audition. They think he's a righteous dude. That's what got her the part. Oh, really? So smart. Yeah. So yeah. smart. Well, and it's that accent. That accent was her <sighs> idea, too. That is why I have got to catch him this time. To show these kids that the example he sets is a first-class ticket to nowhere. Oh, Ed, you sounded like Dirty Harry just then. And then Jeffrey Jones says, really, and then gives this long look. Yeah. What's going on in that look? I have a theory. Uh, I think she knows. How can I say this? It, it occurred to me as I was watching it this time around. I think this is an all, all an act from her and that she knows how to play Rooney like a fiddle. Like most women know how to play men like a fiddle because we're idiots. 
she says she's the way she address she absolutely appeals to his manhood by saying that dirty hairy line and he gives her a look like oh oh that's cool i like that i like that feeling you know so that's what i think i totally agree because i think grace does this amazing thing of completely insulting and belittling him yes in ways that he can't quite catch her Mm -hmm. like the like you shouldn't throw anyone with your bad knees like all that kind of stuff or makes you look like an ass yeah but then she reverses that by these little lines about dirty like dirty harry yeah but then i also think i think jeffrey jones's beat work is he was contemplating saying another tough line like he was about to say go ahead make my day right right but then changed his mind and thought better of it (laughs) that's what i see in that pause i could see that yeah so we're back to uh him trying to convince cameron cameron this is my ninth sick day if i get caught i won't graduate i'm not doing this for me i'm doing it for you is he doing it for cameron (sighs) that's a good question maybe we do think I think he cares about Cameron. Of course he cares about Cameron, but I don't think we have enough context, right? To know what their relationship was like before. Although we do hear later on in the film, at this point, we don't have enough context, but later on in the film, he says like, you've been saying that to me since the fifth grade or whatever, third grade. And so clearly there's a history between them, but we don't know what his actual ulterior motive is here because everything he's flying by the seat of his pants the whole time in this film. So we don't know what his motive overall. So it could be Cameron... But yeah, I agree with you. It's definitely about what he wants to do as well. Yeah, I think, well, this is, I know, I know you think I'm insane, but this is actually relates to uh, McMurphy in Cuckoo's Nest. Here we go. This, All right. But this is what, this, in fact, this was your thought, which I oh. totally agree with, Okay. which is that McMurphy is in fact just doing, he's following his own desires and mm-hmm. that is bringing all of these other people on this journey yeah. along with him. And he does care about them. But he cares about McMurphy first. Yes, 100%. Yeah. I think that's true of Ferris Bueller. I think he's following his own pleasure. Yes. And he does care about Cameron and Sloan. Absolutely. Right. But he's doing what he wants to do. Yeah, but I also think both Cameron and Sloan have their moment to kind of call him out on that. Because he yes, thinks I agree. he's got the upper hand on both of them, but he doesn't. I'm so disappointed in Cameron. 20 bucks says he's sitting in his car debating about whether or not he should go out. Cut to in his car. He'll keep calling. He'll keep calling. Everything Alan Ruck does. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. It's so fantastic. Yeah. This is, this is ridiculous. Okay. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. With, I'll go. Shit. I am. So, I've never asked you this question. Hmm. I have no evidence of this, but I am certain that you have hit the passenger seat of a car. In that way, at some point in your life. Oh, probably, yeah. Either um, because of something that spilled on me or getting cut off in traffic. But I've hit my steering wheel much more than I've hit my passenger seat, for sure. But yeah, but that whole thing sitting there in a car, I have done that on a few occasions, for sure, when I've been on the fence about doing something. You know, because I'm very big about sliding doors in my life. I'm a mm. massive person who spends way too much time thinking, well, if, I, if I'm if i hesitant about something, I sit there and go, well, if I do this, this changes the course of my life. If I make this decision, I go and do this thing, what is it going to lead to? And if I don't go, what is it going to lead to? So I'm always that. So that sitting in the car thing, I have done numerous times, man. And then he starts the car and then he stops the car. And yeah. Then he screams. <laughs> 
yeah. and he gets out and he walks away. And the fact that John Hughes stays on the shot of the empty car yeah. and seeing him in the background. And by the way, he's wearing a uh, Gordie Howe jersey Yep, uh, because John Hughes is a big hockey fan. Yeah. There's so much in this movie that is just John Hughes paying tribute to the things that he loves. Right. Right. And then we cut to another classroom and the teacher, I never knew this. The teacher of the second classroom, that's Del Close. Yes, from The uh, Untouchables. And also a very big teacher. Huge improv guy. Improv, yeah. yeah, and yeah, yeah. We see uh, Sloan for the first time, mm. and we see a nurse who's walking. And I think it, it, you already kind of know about what's about to happen right. just from watching Sloan's reaction to the nurse entering the classroom. Yeah. Uh, and this is Mia Sarah. Yeah. Apparently, Molly Ringwald asked John Hughes, said that she wanted to play this part. I don't think it would have worked. He turned her down. He said, Good. this part is too small for you. You can't mm -hmm. play this part. Yeah. John Hughes wanted an actress that was a little bit older because he wanted someone that seemed very grounded and elegant. Yeah. And he ha auditioned Mia Sarah and really liked her and then found out that she had literally just graduated from high school. <laughs> and then went, well, maybe I shouldn't cast her, but realized that she was the right person. And, and she's one of those people. I think she's really good. She's fantastic. But doesn't doesn't have a huge career after this. No, and so for her, I would for me, I had more of the disappointment that she didn't go on and do more more than Alan Ruck because she's beautiful in this movie and she's got all the tools that you would need, you would imagine, to go to the next level and consistently build carve out a career, you know. But I mean, the eighties are full. Like Phoebe Cates should have been way bigger totally. than she was. So and, and who knew Jennifer Jason Lee was going to be the one to come out of that? movie to be this phenomenal star or incredible actress so you just you just never know yep she's also by the way in one of my uh favorite guilty pleasure movies that i've mentioned many times on this show which is mm -hmm. by the sword with f murray abraham and eric roberts she's yeah. in that weird fencing movie she, <laughs> she's also in the best van damme movie this side of jcvd which is time cop she's his oh. time cop yeah what a strange career man and, and, and what's such good acting and what's such good directing is that she, when she sees the nurse, she starts to get ready to go because she already knows what's happening. Yep. And then her acting surprised when they call her name. <laughs> Your father called. Your grandmother has just passed. The little catch of the breath is so great to play it. And of course, the actress who played the nurse who worked for quite a long time, she's fantastic. Her hugging Sloan and stuff was really sweet. So, Cut to Ed Rooney dead grandmother and he asked for her father's phone number mr peterson's phone number <laughs> and also because he's asking because he wants to know who sloan is dating because he is like a detective you have mini detective you're yep. putting the clues together this is george peterson oh uh please hold how do you know it's mr peterson and we hear this voice come over the phone this is george peterson how are you today sir well we've had a bit of bad luck this morning as you may have heard so Spoiler alert, this is Cameron doing a fake voice. Yeah. Uh, would you like to know where this voice comes from? Oh, please. This is the voice of Gene Sachs, the director of Biloxi Blues. Oh. And that Matthew Broderick and Alan Ruck used to jokingly Im uh, imitate him all the time as they're as they're making that play. This is George Peterson, goddammit. Oh, my God. Oh, you do it good. I can't even good. imagine. Stage left. <laughs> So if you wouldn't mind excusing Sloan, I'd uh, appreciate it. Uh, sure, yeah, I'd be happy to. Yeah, you, uh, you, you just produce a corpse, and uh, I'll release Sloan. It's great. 
back and forth. And and Edie McClurg makes the scene by the slow turn of just mm-hmm. like, what the fuck is going on? It's all right, Grace. It's Ferris Bueller, that little twerp. I'm going to set a trap and let him fall right into it. And then the phone rings and Grace picks it up. Ed Rooney's office. Hi, this is Ferris Bueller. Can I speak to Mr. Rooney, please? At which point Rooney is saying, I'll Tell you what, dipshit. You don't like my policies. You can just come on down here and smooch my big old white butt. What I love about Rooney and what Jeffrey Jones does is that he's so bad at all this. Yes. Like you can see him come up with, I'm going to say this cool thing to cut this kid down. Right. And it's all so just off and awkward. Well, and this is so fun because for those of you who are younger, this is how school was back then. Like you guys who are getting away with convincing your teachers to give you different grades or your parents going after your teachers, going after principals. That is not how it was in the 1980s for a majority of us. So I have a feeling Ed Rooney has used these tactics to success with other people, but his greatest foe, his white whale is Ferris Bueller. And so these things that look weird because we're in the context of Ferris Bueller and look pathetic, they were effective in other kids' stories at that high school, I'm sure. So this is the thing that when I watch the movie that is so uh, fun to explore when you put it in the context of that. He doesn't just default to this because he feels like it or he has no other option. This is he worked for him before. He just can't get it to work on Ferris Bueller, which is frustrating the shit out of him. One of the things that seems to be missing from my uh, kid's school is fear. It's like we were afraid of the principal. Yeah, we used they used to rule us by fear, ladies and gentlemen. And that is not the case anymore. And um, but the moment that Grace says Ferris Bueller's online too. And there's a music sting, and the camera pushes in on Rooney. He looks down at those buttons and switches over. Yeah. <coughs> and we hear Ferris in a very happy voice say, Hey, Mr. Rooney, how you doing? Listen, uh, I'm sorry to disturb you at work, but I'm not feeling very well today. And I was wondering if it might be possible for my sister to bring home any assignments for my classes that I might need. And once again, he's in a new outfit. Now he's in a suit and tie, and he's checking his hair. And then we have the insert of the blinking button where Mr. Peterson is. Yeah. Mr. Peterson? <coughs> um, no, I, I, I think I owe you an apology, sir. Well, I should say you do. And we cut to Cameron. And man, Alan Ruck giving this performance is yeah. so great. So fantastic. Well, I think you should be sorry, for Christ's sake. A family member dies and you insult me. What the hell is the matter with you anyway? And then Grace and Rooney do this scramble to find Sloan. Oh. And, and this is how it came up. Basically, John Hughes kind of said, figure something out. And this was Edie's idea, which is she came up with this idea, which is like an acting exercise, of, which is called help hinder. Have you ever done this? No. This what one is- was not. Yeah, it was not familiar to me. Yeah. And what, what it is, is it's basically that Edie is going to try to look like she's helping him, but continually getting in his way in one way or another. So it's like they're both trying to do the same thing, but all they can do is get in each other's way. It's hilarious because she tosses the phone to Grace and runs into the other room, and he just kind of stands at the desk looking left to right, not knowing what to do, what to grab, then grabs it. And then Ferris gets on the phone, and or Peterson is talking, and she's trying to imitate his voice, which is hilarious by Edie McClure. The, uh, 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 and all of that. And the, the thing is, when she throws the phone back at Ed, she screams, or when she waves Ed back, because she's that's a, mm. such a great, honest reaction. She is 
completely out of relevant, does not want to get caught doing this, and is just desperately screaming for him to come back and take the phone so she's not in this situation anymore. It is so well acted between both of them. It's so honest. And apparently the most of this business is all one take. <laughs> like this is all the first take. There you go. Well, you just mind your P's and Q's, Buster, and remember who you're dealing with. And we cut to Ferris, who says, Bueller. Ferris Bueller. Literally one of the coolest people on film of all time. True. Very true. One of the coolest characters, for sure. Uh, that moment, though, what do you think about that moment? Because, like, what are we doing here? Why is he changing clothes again? He's not going to be leaving in the suit, is he? No, it makes no sense. It's totally, I mean, well, and the thing is, is to do all the things that they apparently do in this day would take like five days. Oh, yeah, I mean, good point. It, yeah. it goes to, you know, just what you're saying before. This is a fantasy. I mean, this right. is just, right. he's putting on a new outfit. He's putting on a suit so he can say Bueller, Bueller, Ferris Bueller in this moment. You know, that's why he's doing it. To show off to Cameron, I guess, yeah. I want my daughter out in front of the school in 10 minutes by herself. And Ferris kind of hits him. It's too suspicious. He'll think something's up. Cover it. And they have this great, like, I love how Alan Ruck goes from the confident, angry Mr. Peterson yeah. to the totally frail and insecure Cameron instantaneously. Like, come on. Oh, that come on face is, he, he has like a perfect comedian face. Oh, you yeah, know what I mean? Totally. It's a rubber face. It's great. Yeah. I changed my mind. I want you out in front of the school with her. I'd like to have a few words with you, by God. And he knocks the phone out of his head. On second thought, we don't have time to talk right now. We'll get together soon and we'll have lunch. And then Ferris kicks him. Look, don't ask me to participate in your stupid crap if you don't like the way I do it. You make me make a phony phone call to Edward Rooney? The man could squash my nuts into oblivion and, and, and then, and then you deliberately hurt my feelings. This is where we see, look, Cameron says this later in the film at the end, right? He says, I, I, wouldn't have come, I wouldn't have let you convince me if I didn't want to come, if I didn't want to bring the car, right? In this moment here, Cameron is standing up for himself mm -hmm. because it hasn't just been his dad or the principal or his mom. It's also been Ferris. And we have those situations in our lives where someone has the dominant position as a friend and essentially co-ops the kind of pseudo-fatherly role in your life, and you go to them for advice, or you go to them for a back and forth. And that's what Ferris is. So his pushback on Ferris in this moment is the first shot we have across the bow that Cameron is his own person. He isn't just Ferris's friend. And when you have these side, I'm not going to say this, when you have characters that are, I don't know about co-leads, or certainly part of a co-lead situation, um, it, it's, it behooves you to give them their own life. And certainly with Cameron in that moment, when he pushes back and tells him that, you know, don't fucking hit me. You asked me to do this stupid shit for you. And now you're complaining that I'm, I'm doing it wrong when I had it right the whole time. And Ferris, because like you said, Ferris, the little privileged kid, he's, oh, I didn't hit you. I lightly tapped you trying to change the narrative, trying to gaslight him a little bit about what actually happened so he doesn't have to take responsibility for his behavior because that's not something that's in Ferris's wheelhouse right now in his life. So it's a great exchange between the two of them that adds a little more uh, edge to their relationship than you might think in a film like this. Now, I totally agree with that. And I think, I mean, there are times in one's life where you need to have the friend that will push you to do the thing that you maybe need and yeah. wouldn't do on your own, you know? Mm -hmm. 
But there's also a time where friends push you to do things that you shouldn't do right. and you need to stand up. I mean, already Ferris has pushed him into a situation that could be really bad. Yeah. And it's going to get a lot worse. And I like, and, and well, this is the thing is, I totally do think Ferris absolutely really does care about Cameron. There's no question in my mind. But the degree to which it's just what you said of him not really taking responsibility or gaslighting, that's also all part of his personality as well. And I think Ferris doesn't have a lot of close friends. I think Ferris is beloved and mm. well-known and everybody knows Ferris and loves Ferris. But Cameron is his friend because Cameron, just like Robin Williams with Stellan Skarsgård and Goodwill Hunting, Cameron knew Ferris when he didn't know, when he was pimply-faced, didn't know what side of the bed to piss on at summer camp. That's the difference. And I think that's where we see this friendship solidified throughout the movie but there's a reason Ferris doesn't have other friends he could call. There's other friends like he Cameron. He calls Cameron because Cameron has a car, yes, but also because Cameron is legitimately his only friend. You know, that is a really interesting statement because, and I think you're right because those high school kids that idolize him, those aren't his friends. No, no. I mean, to some degree, your friends need to have. I don't know how to say they, they need to have some power over you. That's not the right way to say it, but they need to, you know, it's like, it has to be some equality. You can't just be the God that everyone worships. That's not friendship. Right. Everyone else. I think in the school is a transactional relationship with Ferris. They either stroke his ego or they need something from him. So it's a transactional relationship or associates, you would even say, but with Cameron, Cameron has the goods on Ferris. So there's a certain level of, friendship that develops there you know like just because someone has get you know gets his way all the time you got to have someone who calls him out all the time that's how you solidify friendship you know um it's an interesting question to think about i wonder and i you know we'll, well let's readdress this when we get to the end but sure has their has their relationship changed by the end of the movie you know oh, oh yeah 100 i think 100 but yeah i think so too so after a really funny little physical bit where Rooney is running down the hallway and stopping to look calm in front of each classroom and then running and then stopping. What a great little detail, man. <laughs> this movie is so full of those things. Yeah, agreed. It's then we get back to Ferris and Cameron and Ferris, after being nice and trying to make up a little bit, says, You did screw up, though, right? I mean... Not that it was completely your fault. It gaslights it. Dude, we know people like this, don't we, in our lives who don't want to... I mean, I'm not going to mention the person that I know and personally in my life, separately from you, that does this, but it is frustrating when they do it. Just sit in this place that you fucked up. Just sit in it. It's okay. We've all been there. We all get through it. But why do you have to try to minimize your blame in a situation what is it you're getting out of it and when i experience it it's always frustrating and i've learned over the last few years to push back and call that person out but it is frustrating to be someone who wants to kind of minimize what they did so that they can achieve a certain level of equality all over again well this is why i'm saying ferris is not always a good person i mean ferris true (coughs) cameron immediately knows ferris is up to something and says why well to fix the situation, I'm going to have to ask you for a small favor. So let me ask a Steve Morris question. Yes, I'm ready. Did he always know he was going to ask for that Ferrari? I've thought about this, and I've gone back and forth about it. Mm. My gut is that he did. Mm-hmm. That's my gut. What about you? Yeah, 100%. I think he knew somehow, some way in the back of his I think he had in the back of his mind 
if the opportunity presents itself, I'm going to blow this out. This is my, as you said, he's a selfish, he can be a selfish guy. If I'm going to have this ninth day in risk graduation, I'm going to blow it all out because I'm a senior and this is the end of my high school life. So I want to have an awesome last day playing hooky before I have to go back to school and finish out the year. So to me, I think he had it in his mind that he was going to find his way, whether uh, manipulating it or uh, taking advantage of the opportunity when it came up, to find a way to get to that Ferrari. Did he think he was going to get it? I don't know. But I think he had it in his mind that he was going to get to that Ferrari. Because, I mean, he had Sloan record that message that Rooney calls later and gets Sloan's family, and it's Sloan leaving that message on the answering machine. So he had planned this out. No, I hadn't thought about that point. That is a very good point. The whole way this is filmed is beautiful. Oh, yeah. Like, we start down at their feet, walking up to the glass doors, and the doors open. We hear the birds. By the way, they also considered a Porsche Turbo for this. Ooh. Ferrari is just, uh, that. this car is so beautiful. It's choice, you might say. <laughs> it's choice. I highly recommend picking one up if you have the means. The 1961 Ferrari 250 GT, California. Oh, yeah, by yellow. Less than 100 were made. My father spent three years restoring this car. I bought the album from Ye- of Yellow <laughs> just to have this song. Right. There's nothing like this song. It is his love. It is his passion. It is his fault he didn't lock the garage. <laughs> so all the inserts of yeah. the cards, the real extreme close-ups, those are off of a real Ferrari. Oh yeah, no surprise. Yeah. Because they just couldn't fake it, but the, the rest of it is a kit. It's like a fiberglass version of it. And so whenever they're really close to it, it th- that's where they would use these inserts. Yeah. Cuz this even even in 1985 when they filmed this, this is a really expensive car. Yeah. I I love Everything that Matthew Broderick does, the way he touches the car, the way he just his whole reaction to it is great. Ferris, my father loves this car more than life itself. A man with priorities so far out of whack doesn't deserve such a fine automobile. You're a high school kid. What do you fucking know what a man deserves? But you know, in that moment, he again, like you say, he's trying to get what he wants. Cameron, I'm sorry, but we can't pick up Sloan in your car. Mr. Rooney would never believe Mr. Peterson drives that piece of shit. It's an insidious thing what Ferris is doing here, right? I mean, if you want to break it down psychologically, as you were talking about earlier, that Ferris is not always the best person. This is insidious because he's still trying to reclaim the dominant position in their relationship from that moment in the kitchen. From bringing him over to get the car, and then that moment, he doesn't have to call Cameron's car a piece of shit, but he does. He knows Cameron's sensitive, but it's once again, it's his way of reclaiming a dominant position in a friendship. And so he has to undercut something that Cameron has that he doesn't have. And he does say it like, well, I have to envy your piece of shit because I don't even have anything. But he has to first insult it so that he can lay some kind of um, psychological claim on it or, or dominion over it. This is how this can be sometimes in human relationships, human interactions, you know. Well, and let's be real clear. Mm-hmm. Again, I love this movie. I love everything that happens. What Ferris Bueller is doing in this moment is absolutely terrible. Yes, this is terrible. Yeah, like there are there is no way that Ferris can predict the consequences that this is going to have on his friend Cameron. Right. I mean, this is a. I mean, he's stealing a fucking Ferrari. Like this is well, and it's the, for, 
They're both yeah. stealing the Ferrari. Let's be real. Sure, but it's Cameron wouldn't do this on his own. This is all Ferris pushing Cameron into doing it. Yeah, but I think you're removing the responsibility Cameron has to have said no. And Cameron says later on at the end of the film, Absolutely he true. says, I wouldn't have let you do this if I didn't want to do it. Right, the car. So I think Cameron wanted someone to push him to do it because Cameron's been wanting to do it for a very long time. I, I think that is definitely true for Cameron's character. It doesn't excuse Ferris's behavior. No, because no, Ferris not. isn't really Ferris is doing this because I want to drive this Ferrari. Absolutely. 100 percent And watching him, I don't know what direction John Hughes gave to Matthew Broderick on how to get into this car, but it has always looked like someone sliding into a really hot hot tub to me. Yeah. Like just the gingerness of it. It's oh, and yeah. the and the joy. It's so, so good. How about we run a nice Cadillac? A nice stretch job with a TV and a bar. How about that? Which, by the way, that is actually a perfectly reasonable solution. Sure. In fact, it's a better solution because they have a death in the family. Mm-hmm. And they might be, you know, a, a limo makes sense in a way a Ferrari does not. How many kids do you know that could order a limo? Well, these are rich kids, man. <laughs> yeah, but still, man. I mean, I don't know how much age. this... It's the age thing, right? You can't... I, well, this, I mean, clearly Cameron's family is very rich. Yes, but like you to rent a car, you have to be 25. So to rent a limo, I imagine you need your parents' permission if you're a teenager. So I don't I, think you could have rented the limo. Wait, you're saying, I mean, this movie is, is realistic now? <laughs> I'm just trying to work within the logic, I guess, of what might um, be here. But yeah. I, and I love the shot of Matthew Broderick backing up into frame. It's just, oh, yeah. So good. I mean, this was one of the interesting things, particularly with this movie about John Hughes, is we don't think of John Hughes as a brilliant camera person or things like that mm. the shots are great it's a really well put together movie yeah he, he to me john hughes gets a little bit disrespected because people don't see people love the nostalgia of his films but they don't actually take the time to really understand how brilliant of a filmmaker he was in these movies other filmmakers tried to make teenage films that connected to teenagers back in the 1980s there's a reason when you say that name to certain people from that time it elicits such a response, and it's because of his direction. It isn't just the writing or the interactions yeah. of the cact- or the actors of the casting. It's the direction as well, the smart moves that he makes that appeals to us on a molecular level when we're watching his movies. They just spoke to us from our core out, you know? Absolutely. And the thing is, and we talked about this, I know, when we did Breakfast Club, is yeah. that the ability to look back at what life was really like when you were in high school and give it truth is something that most writers can't do. Yeah. And he can. And his batting average is, as you listed his films, is mm-hmm. really, really high. Yes. We're back with Rooney and Sloan. And I love his words of wisdom. <laughs> Put wisdom in quotation marks. But they're yes. all, yeah, they're all just so. I am trying to look like a wise, sensitive man so that you say nice things to your dad when you see him. And then we hear the car coming, we see a bus pass by, and then there is the Ferrari with Matthew Broderick standing in front in a hat and a trench coat. And she goes to uh, her dad. Hi. Do you have a kiss for daddy? Are you kidding? And they make out as Rooney watches. So that's how it is in their family. (laughs) 
So he doesn't suspect anything just yet. And it's a weird thing to be casual about a father and daughter making out, but it's an interesting comment. Of course, the eighties were weird time for that. You know, you could have your mom try to hit on you back in the 1950s and you could have brother and sister kiss and star Wars. So (laughs) the eighties were really weird about that or a big, you're sleeping with an 11 year old in a human body on an adult body. So we were weird about that kind of stuff. But in that moment, you know, nowadays you'd have some people who have, might have an issue with that. But in that moment, it's a funny moment. And it isn't until they get in the car and speed off that I think Ed realizes he's been had. Well, it's, I mean, the fact is Ferris's voice sounds nothing like the Mr. Peterson that he talked to on the phone. That's true. That's true. Um, and uh, the other thing, by the way, is that kiss, that's was it was really a short kiss. It was yeah. it was romantic, but it was short, but it was extended in post. Oh. To make it look like a really long kiss. That makes sense, yeah. What are we going to do? The question isn't what are we going to do. The question is what aren't we going to do. Don't say we're not going to take the car home. Please don't say we're not going to take the car home. And again, it's the takes to the camera breaking the fourth wall that Matthew Broderick is so good at. He yeah. turns right to us and says, If you had access to a car like this, would you take it back right away? Neither would I. And speeds out of frame. So Matthew Broderick's been cast. Alan Ruck and Mia Sarah think that they've been cast. Oh. And they go in for a wardrobe test, uh, which a wardrobe test, theoretically, is you just put characters in costume and you put and you film them to see how everything looks. Yeah. And the wardrobe test gets shot and it goes to some executives and the executives watch it and they come out and tell Alan Ruck and Mia Sarah, I'm sorry, there's just no chemistry with you and Matthew Broderick. Oh, shit. And so the executives call up John Hughes and say, okay, I think we're going to have to recast. And John Hughes is like, it was a wardrobe test. (laughs) They weren't acting. They were just standing there. Oh, executives. Yeah. So this is really where you see John Hughes' love of Chicago. Mm -hmm. Because to the song Beat City by the Flowerpot Man, and we should say this is a great soundtrack. It is a great soundtrack. Agreed. Um, This soundtrack woke me up to the Smiths, which we'll get later. Um, And we see just beautiful shots of the skyline. And I actually think this sequence of them driving is almost a nice little rest. Because things have been moving really, really fast up to this point. Yeah. And Ferris starts letting go of the steering wheel to mess with Cameron. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just think, dude, it's a hundred, it's a multi hundred thousand dollar Ferrari. He's like, keep your hands on the fucking wheel, man. Jesus. Well, and look, once again, a little window into their relationship. Cameron slaps him on the top of the head. So again, he's got a limit to what he'll let Ferris do, you know? Um, and then we cut to someone passing a Pepsi can around and saying, <laughs> save Ferris. What? Well, um, see, we're collecting money to buy Ferris Bueller a new kidney. They run about 50 Gs or so. So if you could help out. Go piss up a flagpole. There used to be save Ferris shirts that everybody wore for oh, yeah. years, man. It, it, until the vote for Pedro shirts came out. Pedro shirts came out. <laughs> Those, you know, I don't sometimes I have to you know, remember to say it in the Spanish accent, but yeah, the safe Ferris shirts were great. Oh my god, I loved seeing those. Man. But the situation with the Pepsi, right? The the asking for money and all of that, uh, it's right up on Genie, and Genie is like super mad at the dude and slaps the Pepsi can of coins out of his hand. Hey, by the way, how is he going to collect enough money for a kidney, 50 grand with a Pepsi can? But that's how you are in high school, I guess, for some people. When she slaps the can out, his response is hilarious. And what if you need a favor someday from Ferris Bueller? Then where will you be, huh? 
you heartless wench. I didn't grow up in the 70s uh, as a teenager. So Jane, you ignorant slut was never a thing in my mind, like a, a thing I would say. But you heartless wench was something that would always come up in certain moments as a funny retort in my mind for something that, you know, that, that happened. So it was, it was so funny to see it again in the film. You know, it'd be interesting to like, I don't know how you would do this, but to mm. find out, depending on what year you graduated high school or what generation you are, yeah. what is your most quotable movie? Like, what were the movies that everyone of your era quoting? This is, you know? this is up there. I mean, like I said. Oh, yeah. Then they walked over and was like, are you doing the whole movie for me? Because I, I swear to God, I just know them backwards and forwards. Yep. Uh, yeah, this is up there for sure. Ferris Bueller's behind this. There is no doubt in my mind. And now he's got Sloan Peterson involved in this thing. Her grandmother, too. <laughs> so smart. She's so funny. Fifteen years from now, when he looks back on the ruin his life's become, he is going to remember Edward Rooney. So th there's all the stuff with Paul Gleason and Bender, and where he, he has a whole monologue about ten years from now when you've forgotten about this place, or he ha or he has the whole thing about imagine Sean Bender in ten years. That's the same kind of oh, stuff yeah. that's going on with Rooney, right? Each of their each of their main antagonists gets that retort said to them. That's a great point. Yeah. Well, and again, this is the institution trying, you know, the representatives of the institution feeling disrespected by the kids, Yeah, you know, are we pull our Ferrari into a garage? <laughs> by the way, I love, I love like the berets and the outfit, you know, it's just such eighties, eighties yeah. clothes. We're not leaving the car here. Why not? It could get wrecked, stolen, scratched, breathed on wrong. A pigeon could shit on it. Who knows? <laughs> And, he, and Ferris goes, calm down. I'm going to give the guy a fiver. A fiver. High school kids, man. And, uh, and up walks Richard Edson. <sighs> Pito. He has such a perfect face for this part. You know, this whole interaction, dude. He's he, like his slow clocking in. And then it's the quick flash of like, damn, that's a nice car. Yeah. Maybe the, maybe the nicest car he's ever had in that garage. And when he walks over. And Ferris is like, do you speak English? His fucking reaction, which is a, a racist line, by the way. And I know. And he says to him, he says, what, what kind of country do you think we're in? And, and throwing back at him the stupidity of that question, Ferris sneaks off a look at the camera, right? Mm -hmm. And that's an interesting moment. And then he gets in that, and then he has to coax Cameron out of the car. So this whole interaction with this guy is so fascinating, man. Uh, this is where it's like, on the one hand, Ferris is like the coolest guy in the world. Sure. On the other hand, he is a rich, privileged kid who doesn't know much about the world at all. Not at know? all. Right, exactly. And his sense of entitlement is exceptionally high. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, you fellas have nothing to worry about. I'm a professional. Professional what? Drives the car away. Yeah. Ferris is all proud of what he did with his Fitzky. And they walk out on the street, and the minute they walk out on the street, right behind them, that car pulls out, with, and, and his buddy jumps in. By the way, I don't know if you know this, Steve, but and, and maybe you did the research for this, but they are talking about doing a sequel to this movie, and that it is going to focus on those two guys. <laughs> I, I did not I, know that. I don't know how it, that makes any sense, but they are talking about doing a sequel, and it would be those two guys and their adventures. And it would be somewhat loosely related to Ferris or connected to the Ferris, the world of Ferris Bueller, right? 
course, those guys are older now. I think they're both still alive. So it would be fascinating. Or they're going to recast maybe and explore what happens to them on those on, on, in that car on that day. Well, we know they travel around 200 miles. Yes. So what happened in those 200 miles could be a separate Ferris Bueller movie, but it's a different person's name, one of those guys, or they're both their names in essence of what happened over those 200 miles. Okay. <laughs> well, in 2035, I expect to do this film on the cinephiles. <laughs> well, I got, I hope not. But listen, and I don't think it's going to be good is what I'm saying. But it's fascinating too, because this is a film about these guys, or these kids playing hooky from school, teenagers playing hooky from school. Those two dudes jump in the car and 200 miles, they essentially played hooky from their job. Totally. No, absolutely. It's absolutely Those true. Those are companion pieces if you want to do a sequel. So We have a sequence where mom comes home and it's all scary music and she opens the door and we see, A, that there's a mannequin in the bed with a very dark arm that's clearly visible. Yeah. And that there's snoring going on from his synthesizer. And she opens and that there's a uh, a trophy from a string that when she opens the door causes the, the mannequin to turn away from her. Yeah. And but needless to say, Ferris gets away from it. And then we cut to them. And this is this is John Hughes' love letter to Chicago because we start with our big – we're at the Sears Tower on the observation yeah. deck. And I love the shots up at their faces. It's just well shot. And I, I don't know why it's funny that Cameron says, I think I see my dad. You know, we go to the stock market, uh, the commodities exchange, I think, and watch all the people doing their strange hand gestures. And then we watch Alan Ruck do just fantastic hand gestures. Oh, yeah, very funny stuff. And Ferris turns to Sloan and says – you want to get married? Sure. Today. I'm serious. This is Ferris once again, like, let's do the crazy things, right? Without thinking of the consequences. And Cameron and Sloan are always thinking of the consequences. And in this moment, Sloan is the one that says to him, like, I don't want to get married today. She makes it clear. And it's kind of mind-blowing that you tell me that she had just graduated high school because she is clearly much more composed than Matthew Broderick because of the character that he's doing, but right. she has this energy that feels older than Matthew Broderick in this exchange. And so she, this is once again, like I said, Sloan and, and Cameron have a way of pushing back on Ferris uh, or being aware of what Ferris is and their time. Like, I don't think she ever marries Ferris. I think Ferris was a building block in her life and a great experience for what it was, but she outgrew Ferris for sure. Yeah, and so this moment is, I think you're sh you're seeing the beginning of the dissolving of this relationship. This moment, even though he's asking to marry her. First of all, I'm really glad because I t I totally agree with you that this relationship will not continue. No, like of it, 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 this is this is this re relationship now. I have a very negative interpretation. I'm not saying that this is what I'm about to say is true, but it's a thought that pops in my mind. Okay. Is that I've known people that sometimes will say the thing that they know is going to make you feel really good about them or feel mm. something positive, knowing that you're going to say no to it. You know what oh, I mean? Right. They use the situation to, yeah. Yeah. I don't think Ferris, Ferris knows she's going to say no to getting married today. Mm. And that makes him free to say the romantic thing that he knows is going to make her feel romantic. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like, cause there's a built in out, but the actual, the, probably the real reason I think John Hughes said this, that this scene exists mm. is to have the Cameron moment. Give me one good reason. Why not? I'll give you two good reasons. Why not? My mother and my father, they're married and they hate each other. You've seen them. Am I right? So what? Well, it's like that car. He loves the car. He hates his wife. So 
let me ask the question back to you. Why does he think that relates to Ferris and Sloan? Does he think that um, Ferris loves his life like the Ferrari, but doesn't love Sloan or would end up hating Sloan because Sloan would eventually want him to stop living this uh, charmed life of his and deal with and live in the real world? That's a really good question. I the, the the line that my my brain immediately went to is the mm. moment in Breakfast Club where Ali Sheedy says, "It's inevitable when you grow up, your heart dies." Mm. Yeah. You know, is that I think Cameron's. I mean, you learn what marriage is by looking at your parents. Yeah, absolutely. And yes. I think Cameron has looked at the institution of marriage and said, "That's where your heart dies." Yeah. You know. Yeah. And it's, you know, and I had to say, actually, but you make a really good point. I hadn't thought of it quite this way. Mm. Ferris just used his friend to get to drive the Ferrari. Sure. And Cameron just said, my dad loves the car. He hates his wife. Yeah. Is that the object is more important to his father than the human. Right. And Ferris just used his friend to get to the object. Yeah. When everybody hands you things and you're super popular, it's real hard to, it's a certain level of wealth. It isn't oh, yeah. actual money wealth, but it's emotional wealth. And so it makes it harder for you to connect to people on a human level. That's what I think. Because you're so used to being feted, you don't know what it's actually like to fall down and stumble and be vulnerable and be in need. You have no concept of it. And so for so in a way, that can warp your mind a bit to, for lack of a better term, to see human beings as a means to an end or as something to fill your life with rather than really at a molecular level connecting to them. And I think that's what you see with Ferris. He doesn't see that. When we get to that Chicago, when we get to the Abe Froman scene, it's very clear in that scene what how he sees people and the consequences that could befall people in his sphere of, because of the things that he's doing. Um, I couldn't agree more. And I, and I think getting what you want and having everyone tell you you're awesome all the time, it's not good for you. That's why I exist. And then we head off to the fanciest restaurant in the city of Chicago, Chez Louis. Chez Louis. Yeah. And they walk in and Ferris checks the little reservation books and sees the name Abe Froman. And then a very snooty maitre d' played by Jonathan Schmock comes up. Here's how he got this gig is he was a stand-up comic and had a partner who did, he did sketch with, and they had an idea that they got a pitch meeting with John Hughes mm -hmm. and John Hughes did not bite on the idea they were pitching, but said, I might have a part for you in my movie. And that's how he got this gig. I used to watch their show. Oh, really? Him and his partner had a show in the eighties or they were, they were part of a sitcom. And I'm trying to remember what the name of the sitcom was because they had such great chemistry as actors in the thing that they were doing. Oh, it's the Michael Nesmith show in television parts. Oh, yes. I remember that. Yes. And they had a show called double. They were in double trouble. Uh, they were part of the, cause that was a show with uh, Katie Segal's sisters, Gene Segal and Liz Segal. Mm. They were the twins who were the leads in the show. And it was Jonathan Schmuck with another guy. I think it was James Vallelli who was his partner. And I just remember them being a part of this, almost like kind of, they were like the bosom buddies 
of the show. And so when he popped up in Ferris Bueller, I was like, oh, this is cool. And he did, he does such a great job here in this scene. Oh he God. is perfectly irritatingly snooty. I mean, it's, yes. you know, it's, it's perfect. Oh, may I help you? You can sure as hell try. Hi, I'm Abe Froman. Party of three for 12. You're Abe Froman. That's right. I'm Abe Froman, the sausage king of Chicago. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> that's me. Awesome. All the takes are so good. And, and, you know, the maitre d' knows that he's lying and trying to dismiss him. And he says, are you suggesting that I'm not who I say I am? I'm suggesting that you leave before I have to get snooty. Snooty? Snotty. Snotty. Snotty? And at this point, Sloan and Cameron are like, okay, let's go. This is too far. <laughs> okay, Abe, let's get on out of here. No, we like to be seated. Listen, young man, either you take the field trip outside or I'm going to have to call... The police. The pol- You're going to call the police on me? Yes. Fine. As a matter of fact, I'll call them myself. The storytelling is so good because he looks down at the numbers on the little button on the phone and we see him dialing and yeah. then that phone immediately rings. Yeah, it's a, such an interesting scene because, you know, he tells him, if you touch me, I yell rat. Mm-hmm. So then I, I'd never even thought about that situation in a restaurant, but it's so brilliant to use that. And his um, comment to them as he's walking off the maitre d' when he's just like, I weep for the, for the future, you know, right. which is the comment of every person who's above a teenager who says that sometimes when they see teenagers do things. We'll do it now. You know, a lot of us who are above a certain age certainly see teenagers now and go, oh, man, we're so fucked in our future. And we have that fourth wall break. A, you can never go too far. B, if I'm going to get busted, it is not going to be by a guy like that. So first of all, he goes to get the other phone. And we hear Sloan there asking for Abe, and she gives the description of Ferris. And here's the thing. Normally, in a movie, if you use the same gag twice to trick somebody, and that this gag being the sort of two people on the phone line, yeah. I would say you're repeating yourself. I feel the opposite in this. I don't know how you feel. No, it's a completely different scenario, so it works. It's well, a completely different scenario. Well, and it, you kind of because, and I think maybe because you're a little more ahead of it this time, that you go, "Oh, they're they're doing, the, they're using the same thing on this guy." He uses be, the same voice to be the police yep. chief, yeah. Well, and the same name, it's Sergeant Peterson. Sergeant Peterson, that's right, right. And the temptation he has to not hit the other button is so great to see him have the inner back and forth, and then he yeah, does right. hit the button. <clears throat> Mr. Froman, this is Sergeant Peterson, Chicago Police. And cut to them sitting down at the table. And his eating uh, crow in that, st- standing there next to the table, is fascinating. I appreciate your understanding. Don't think twice. It's understanding that makes it possible for people like us to tolerate a person like yourself. Now, in the 1980s, when you're caught up in this film, you're on Ferris's side. But of course, as Steve was pointing out throughout the episode here, there are moments now as we've kind of changed in our mentality or our approach to films where this moment from him is a pretty dickish moment to have a rich kid talking down to a major D who's probably struggling to pay his bills because you don't make that much money being a major D and doing his thing. And you've just made a fool of him. And yet you're going to dig the knife in even deeper by saying that it allows him because in the eighties, you're seeing him as this snooty guy and, whatever but as you get older you realize that guy's probably struggling to live you know 
It's funny when we started, you you were going to have all these arguments with me, and now here you are, literally making every one of my points for me. I hundred percent agree. Well, and this is the thing: is that Ed Rooney? I still like him. I, still I love him. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I love the movie. The thing I Ed, default to is he's a kid. He's a teenager. What is he Ed, Ed Rooney's a jerk, and this Mater D is a snooty jerk. Mm-hmm. They're also both totally right. Oh no, Rooney is absolutely right. Yeah, that's the trick of the movie is they make you go against Rooney and see him as the antagonist when in, in fact he is the correct, he is the protagonist in a way because he is trying, he's actually, he has, how can I say this? He is trying to achieve something, right? In, in films we say the antagonist, most of the time in a great film, the antagonist is trying to get something, trying to achieve something, whether it's to win the hand of a woman or to get a treasure or to get some kind of closure about something. Ed is trying to catch this guy. He, that's his job, to catch this guy, because this guy has made a fool of him, and he is, by the letter of the law, breaking the yeah. school code of conduct to be let go. But the manner in which he's choosing to do it is where it's, it's an issue. Well, this is, and this is why the movie totally works. Yeah. Is watching Ed Rooney get its, his comeuppance is fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the fact is, is that Ferris did break into the school's computer system to change yes. his number of absences. Right. He did lie about a dead grandmother to get his girlfriend out. He is cutting class. He is doing all, everything is true. And this Mater D is absolutely right. This is a high school kid who's come in trying to steal somebody's res, uh, reservation. Right. He's totally right. Now, we feel good about the snooty jerk getting his comeuppance. But, well, and I have another question about this too, by the mm. way. Because uh, as they sit and they eat, did they pay for this meal or did the maitre d' Probably not. I would imagine the, the restaurant took it on the chin. And one would assume this is a fairly expensive restaurant. So now yes. they're stealing a meal after lying and manipulating this guy. <laughs> you know, and again, I love the movie. It's totally, totally fun. But these are the joys of being young is that you do Absolutely. these things without knowing what the actual ramifications are. And you like rebelling and you like... So there's a joy in seeing these scenes. You know, I'm, we're not, I'm not sure. I don't think either one of us are trying to throw water on these scenes, but we're analyzing them as we do on the show. But the joy of those scenes are still there. And it's a lot of fun to see him get away with what he gets away with in these moments. Um, and yes, he's very likable. So when he does dig the knife in, you're actually kind of laughing along with him as he does it. Because his face, <laughs> okay, yes, thanks. The, the Major D's face is so good with his yeah reactions to it well and we love him getting nailed by ferris basically um i also think by the way it was very smart of john hughes to not have them drinking wine yeah of course yes great point yes because then we would have a weird feeling about that yeah um and he turned and 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 all the little funny bits of chewing on the ice and all that they're all funny and he turns to cameron and says cameron dear friend you thought we wouldn't have any fun shame on you and i think at that moment you didn't think you'd have any fun is a good time for us to stop part one of Ferris Bueller's day off. Uh, as always, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this film. You could visit us on Facebook. If you do a search for the cinephiles, you can follow the show at Cine underscore files on Twitter, cinephiles podcast on Instagram. And of course you can follow me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. You can subscribe to the show on Apple podcasts on YouTube, Stitcher, Spotify, and you can buy or stream a Ferris Bueller's day off along with every other movie we've ever reviewed on cinephiles.net. John, what do you have to tell the fine people out there? Well, you can always follow me at the Roca says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, the outlaw nation on Twitch and my YouTube channel, please. I'm trying to break my own record and get 25,000 subscribers by the end of the year. 
on my YouTube channel. Come and help me do that. Double what I have now. Uh, you know, you got to have big goals in life. So head on over to youtube.com slash John Roca says and see all the great content I've got going on there. And I am committed to bringing Steve Morris onto the channel more to do some of our uh, great conversations about the things that are going on in the world and some of these movies that we're watching that are currently out. Well, I would love that. I like Cameron. You can always call me and get me to come on over. Not that I'm saying that you act like Ferris. Yeah, please not don't what I meant. Yeah. Um, I think that's it for this week. We'll be back to have more fun adventures with Ferris Bueller in the city of Chicago right here on the Cinephiles. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. This is the place where Black is the main character, where we dive into something new like the latest season of Them, The Scare, and the award-winning American fiction. Or add to the experience by buying or renting the biopic of a legend, Bob Marley, One Love. And add on channels like Paramount Plus and Stars to bask in nostalgia with Beverly Hills Cop and BMF. Explore Prime Video's culture-rated collection and enjoy old-school greats and new-school hits. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details.